Scripture reading from Genesis 2, chapter 15 to 25. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed a very, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and bought, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib of the Lord of God had taken from the man he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was, made, she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man of his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Please be seated. In a sort of odd way, the um, graphic on the screen says this is in the beginning part 6b because last week was in the beginning part 6a. I could have named it just part 6 and 7, but really this is a continuation from where we were as we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 last Sunday and going on to sort of apply that understanding of the miraculous, of the way that God works by sovereign power in everything sometimes in very ordinary ways so that we almost fail to notice the miracle of the changing of the seasons and of the sun shining in the sky and all the things that God just continually does from day to day. And then there are those times when he works by his sovereign providence in ways that are out of the ordinary, in ways that draw our attention and make us think that Something really special is going on here, and, and in fact, it probably is. But we need to remember that miracles are not an intervention. God has not established laws that just work by themselves, like a clock that ticks off the time. And then every now and then, he steps in to either wind the clock or to move the dial to set it ahead or to set it back in some sort of a special providence. The things that we perceive as the laws of nature are the ongoing work of the providence of God. And so there's really no exception. There's no intervention when God does a miracle. There's just God working in a way that's somewhat different from what he usually does. And as we saw last Sunday at the center of history, at least in terms of significance, if not in terms of chronology, we find a miracle. 
a miracle of God's grace. We find God executing a special providence in the history of the world that had never been seen before and would never be seen again. We find the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from the dead. Now this is important because belief in this miracle, in the reality of it as a historic event, faith or trust in the reality of the resurrection from the dead is the sine qua non, that is the necessary condition of what it means to be a believer. Apart from belief, apart from faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we really have no right to identify ourselves as Christians. I know that's a relatively bold statement since in this world today there are many people who do self-identify as Christian who would not wholeheartedly affirm this central tenet of the faith. It's hard to believe, but there are actually a lot of them out there. We have people who claim to be Christian in some sense, and yet will openly confess to agnosticism and say, I'm not even really sure that there's a God, never mind that Jesus Christ is his only son, our Savior, and that he came and died on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. And yet they want to carry that label of Christian as if it gains some kind of traction or, or some kind of credit in the social system, and sometimes it does. But Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, tell us the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because, and catch this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you acknowledge and submit to the Lordship of Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So as I said, this is the indispensable condition for one to make the claim that he or she is a Christian. Now that doesn't mean that that's all there is to it. That would be kind of like saying that to get to Toronto by car, all you have to do is go out into the parking lot and get into a car. In the illustration, of course, getting into the car is essential. Just as salvation is essential to being a Christian, but there's far more to getting to Toronto by car than simply getting in the car, and there's far more to being and believing and living as a Christian than simply being saved. So it's not a one-and-done deal. Well, at some point in my past, I believed or claimed to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and I prayed a prayer, I confessed him as Lord, now I'm saved, that's that, I can get on with the rest of my life. It's just not how it works, there's much more to it, and that's why we're taking the time to study the book of Genesis this summer, because the book of Genesis is the word of God, it's part of the gospel that speaks to us of who God is, and how God requires that we would approach him in worship. The thing is that miracle at the center of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is also inseparably bound to a miracle at the end of history, as we read last Sunday in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man 
by Amen has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, the resurrection of Christ, which is atypical, it's not like any of the other resurrections that we see recorded in scripture because Jesus did not rise to die again. He rose to a glorified existence at the right hand of the Father. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that sense comes first. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that's us, hopefully, those who believe in Jesus Christ, and then comes the end. When Jesus returns at the end of time, space, history as we know it, and the dead in Christ are raised, then that's that for the history as we know it of this world. Now it goes on, but that's another sermon. Now what I want to reflect on for just a minute before we go on is just how miraculous that resurrection of those who belong to Christ at the end of history as we know it really is. Because every now and then we hear stories of someone who was clinically dead and then was resuscitated. They were restored to life after a few minutes. I know such a person myself. But that's become so commonplace in movies and TV, we probably fail to realize just how rare an occurrence that kind of resuscitation is. And if you've seen you know, action movies where the hero is like, dead for four minutes and then somebody comes along and gives him a jolt or a shot of adrenaline and he jumps up ready to fight the villain. That's not how it works. It's just not. It's nothing like that. And it's very rare even in these days when we have access to some pretty amazing technology. But resuscitation is not the same as resurrection. Someone who codes at the hospital and you know the nurses and the doctors have to run in with a crash cart and they do everything they can and they manage to bring them back so to speak well someday that person is going to die again they have not been resurrected to eternal life they've just been raised up from a condition of severe illness and granted a little bit of an extension of life When resuscitation happens, the person has been only clinically dead, and that only for a relatively short period of time. If it goes on too long, resuscitation is not possible. But when we're talking about resurrection, we're talking about something that, that, as I said, the resurrection of Jesus is atypical, but we see some glimpses of it in scripture where Jesus and others raised people from the dead. In the case of Lazarus, Jesus went to his tomb and his family and friends were reluctant to unseal the tomb. They said, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead four days. So when Jesus called him out of the tomb and he came out bound hand and foot with a grave clothes and his face wrapped in a cloth, that was a resurrection. Someone who was genuinely dead, not clinically dead, was brought back. That was a miracle, not a resuscitation. Now, even as I tell the story, and I could tell several others from Scripture as well, I guess that a person can choose to believe the report of Scripture or not. But recognize that if you choose to believe it, there is no scientific explanation 
for how a man who has been dead for four days and has entered into a state of decomposition could be brought back to life. There is no rational, scientific, materialistic explanation for that. It's a miracle. And the same could be said of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if those resurrections can be believed as nothing other than miraculous operations of the sovereign power of God's providence, then think for a minute about the resurrection of those who belong to Christ at his coming. No doubt when that happens, there are going to be some people who've been dead for a matter of minutes or hours or days. There are also going to be those who have been dead for millennia. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence this about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, Peter spoke those words 2,000 years ago, and at the point when he spoke them, David had been dead for about 1,000 years, give or take. So even today, there's nothing to work with there. There's nothing more than dust that remains of David in his tomb, but when Christ returns, that will not matter to him. The patriarch David will be raised from the dead along with all of God's people. The same is true for people who were never placed in tombs. You have only to study some basic biology or view the Lion King, for that matter, to know that even though we eat the antelope, When we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelope eat the grass and we are all connected, according to Mufasa, in the great circle of life. Meaning that by this time, there's not a trace left of anyone who died 4,000 years ago unless that person was very meticulously embalmed. Still, as another patriarch, this time Job, said thousands of years ago, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job has been dead and in the ground since before God gave the law to his people at Sinai. And the molecules that made up his body have long since returned to the so-called circle of life. But there remains a central and indispensable tenet of the Christian faith. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That means that in that day, whenever it may happen, When Christ returns and the dead in Christ rise, there's going to be some of those people that there's no body in the tomb to work with. I was a little amused by those traditions that say, well, you have to be buried in a casket and you have to have your feet pointing east, I think it is, or something along those lines so that when you raise up, you'll... It's, it's, It's really not important, those things. Because for thousands of years, believers have been dying and being put in the ground and their bodies have decomposed and there's absolutely nothing left. And it will not matter to the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns 
because he can recreate as easily as he created and as easily as he can resurrect someone who's been dead four days. This is our faith. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. And apart from this belief in this miracle, we have no claim at all on the name. That being said, if we can believe that in the beginning, God said the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. And if we can believe in the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, that in fact this Jesus God raised up, and if we can believe we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. If we can believe in all of those miracles, if we can believe that God could work so at the center of history and then work that way again at the end of history to say nothing of all of the miracles that he has done in between, if we can believe all of those things, then why would we find it remotely hard to believe that that same God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, catch the two categories. He gives life to the dead and he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Why is it so hard to believe that he did just that at the beginning of time? Well, some would say, I look at the world, and my eyes, my senses, tell me something different. Okay? Many people, perhaps the majority of people in the world today, look at that same world, and their eyes, their senses tell them that, in fact, dead people do not come back to life. Not now, not ever. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So are we now to declare on the basis of the perspective of the materialist that the dead do not rise, that the resurrection stories of Scripture are really more like parables? That the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a literal historical event, but a story to simply remind us that new life springs from death the way that spring follows winter. And I wish I had never heard anyone say that, but I have. That's how some people look at these miracle stories in Scripture. We talked about that some last Sunday. My senses tell me that the dead are not raised my experience tells me that the dead are not raised, but my faith informs me differently. So here's what I believe the Bible teaches about the miracle at the beginning of all things, the miracle of the creation of the world and especially of the creation of human life. Sometime after that fifth day had drawn to a close, and I'm just going to throw this out there, but might come as a bit of a shock. We really have no reason 
to believe that God's work of creation was confined to daylight hours. So sometime after there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then when all of that had been done, after God created the livestock and the creeping things and the beasts of the earth, each according to their kinds, when that was done, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a change of language. I'm not going to take time to explore it today. But there's a change of language here. Because throughout the account of creation, God has said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And God said, and it was so, as we've seen a few weeks back. But this becomes a much more personal thing with God. Having said, let the earth bring forth the beasts and the livestock and the creeping things and so forth. God now says, let us, and it is plural, let us make men in our image after our likeness. This enters into kind of a different phase of these creative acts of God. And this is, it sets it apart from the creation of every other kind of animal and creeping thing and beast of burden. It's particularly set apart from all of that by the fact that God went on to say, and let them have dominion over everything else. The fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and all the earth, that, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And I want you to notice verse 27 especially. Note the way this is expressed. Because there are these times when God, inspiring the authors of Scripture, just comes at it and says, I want you to use this word or this combination of words over and over and over again because I really want to get people's attention with this. We notice this in one of the later chapters of the book of Revelation where there's a Greek expression, kai idon, that just gets repeated again and again and again, every verse or two. And we don't see it in English, but a Greek reader would notice that and say, whoa, what's God trying to say here? So look at verse 27 with that in mind. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the repetition of the word created in this sentence is important. It appears only five times in the entire account of creation in Genesis 1, and three of those are right here in verse 27. Now, it's not to say that anything else in all of creation was not the work of God. Everything in all of creation was the work of God. When the New Testament testifies that Jesus was the creator, the word through whom all things were made. It says, by him and for him and through him, all things were made. So it's not to denigrate any of the rest of the work of creation. It's just to say that when we come to the creation of man in the image of God, God wants to draw this dividing line between this act and all of the rest, and he wants to draw it in a bold way. 
So bold, in fact, that we find a similar repetition in Genesis chapter 5, which begins with these words. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. If you're writing an essay in your English class, your teacher would take that paragraph and scratch out a couple of those createds and say, hey, just, you know, get all the way off that and find a new word to say it. You know, created, made, put together, whatever. But God doesn't do that as the Holy Spirit inspires this work to Moses because God wants exactly what happens when we read the repetition of those words over and over again. It's almost like he knew that someday there were going to be people who would try to blur the distinction between man who is created in the image of God and all of the other creatures who most emphatically are not created in the image of God. The Hebrew scholar Umberto Casuto expressed this idea when he wrote of Genesis 1 verse 27. At this point, the text assumes it takes on a more exalted tone and becomes poetic. The verse consists of three lines, each of which has four stresses and contains the verb bara, which is the Hebrew word for create, the repetition being for emphasis. The first line speaks in general terms of man's creation. The second draws attention to the fact that he was created in the divine image. The third notes the creation of two, count them, two sexes. The poetic structure of the sentence, its stately diction, and its particular emotional quality attest the special importance that the Torah attributes to the making of man, the noblest of creatures." End quote. The noblest of creatures and the only one of God's creatures that was created, both male and female, in the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 elaborates on this point for further emphasis. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This statement, too, indicates that from the very beginning, a distinction is being made between the man and all the other creatures. Now, this is subtle, but every living creature, everything that lives, has within itself the breath of life. We read that earlier in chapter 1. We're going to see it again in subsequent chapters of the book. But only of man does it say very specifically at the moment that he is formed and brought into being in the image of God, that at that moment God breathed into him the breath of life, his spirit. So it's not the breath of life per se that distinguishes man from the animals. We share some things in common. It's the fact that man was formed very specifically and directly as the image of God in a wholly separate act of creation, which is signified by the fact that only after the man had been formed in his image did God give him breath and declare him to be a living creature. This distinction between man and the rest of creation is further highlighted by the fact that when God brought the woman to Adam, we're told very specifically that he had not found this woman among the other hominids that were swinging around the jungle by their tails. 
nor did he form her from the dust of the ground in the same way that he had formed Adam. Rather, verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs. Um, that word's used, I think, about 30 times. The Hebrew word that's translated ribs here in the Old Testament, this is the only place where it's translated ribs. Um, and he closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So the concept of rib as a bone is not really adequate here. God took living material from Adam's side. He took it from the man that he had created, the man into whom he had breathed the breath of life. And again, in the words of Casuto, just as a builder builds with the raw materials of stones and dust an edifice of grace and perfection, so from an ordinary piece of bone and flesh, the Lord fashioned the most beautiful of his creatures. So what we have is another miraculous act on top of the miraculous creation of Adam and Eve. God did not find Eve among the creatures that he had already made. He did not take a sample of her DNA and grow a clone in a Petri dish. He took living material from the side of the man, and out of that material he made a woman every bit as distinct from the rest of creation as her husband was. And that's why Adam, when he saw her burst out in what one commentator has described as the world's first love poem, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We'll talk about that some more in a coming week. And if, on the other hand, the creation of the man and the woman were not these direct, miraculous events where God specifically just stepped in and he formed the man. Then what alternatives do we have? Well, they were the offspring of some primitive hominids, as postulated by those who insist on a single point of origin for all that lives. In other words, Adam had a mom and a dad, and Eve had a mom and a dad. Maybe they were the same mom and the dad. We, we really couldn't know that. But Adam's mother and father and Eve's mother and father were not human. They were animals. Adam's mother and father and Eve's mother and father were not made in the image of God. They were something less than that. Because if we deny this aspect of Adam's creation in the image of God here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we've got some big problems with the New Testament. But I kind of you know, want to stop for a minute and just reflect on, on what that would mean. What would it mean if you were born and you were awakened to some sort of human consciousness as in, I created you in my image, so now I'm going to make a covenant with you, which is what the rest of the text goes on to say in Genesis chapter 1. And by the way, that covenant involves an offer of eternal life. But don't worry too much about mom and dad, because they really have no more significance in your life, Adam and Eve, than if you decide to have a pet cocker spaniel or something along those lines. 
It's one of those areas where we need to answer according to the absurdity of what's presented. It's one thing to say, all life has a single common origin point, fine. If we say that, that means that God did not directly create Adam and Eve, and if God did not directly create them, they came from somewhere. It raises issues as well that we'll have to come to at a later time of the Bible presents us with this picture of the first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And we're going to come to that in just a few minutes here today. But the picture is Adam and Eve in their unfallen state were the pinnacle of what it means to be human. And it was all downhill from there until Jesus Christ comes along and provides redemption and salvation through faith in the shedding of his blood. But if we take the alternative view, then Adam and Eve were actually just baseline human. That was just where it started. And there was a lot of evolution that had to happen between them, if they were even real creatures, and where we are today. So we're actually not worse than them. We're just better in every respect. With sin, of course, but still better. We'll come back to this at a later time, but to sum it up once more for today, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So just as God miraculously raised Jesus Christ, the second Adam, actually the second man, the last Adam from the dead, at the center of history, and just as he will raise all those who belong to him in his coming at the end, God, in the beginning, took of the dust of the ground and by a sovereign act of providential power made of that dust, a man to bear his image and breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living creature and he was given dominion and rule over the rest of creation. I do not believe that these living creatures, the man and the woman, arose by some process from the milieu of other creatures on the earth at the time. Those creatures were made each according to their kind, each successive generation of those creatures bearing offspring in their own image. But according to Scripture, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and stood set apart and alone as the crown of creation. And that's why this matters. Because anybody who believes that God is God would have to admit that God could have created by any means that he chose to use. That's fundamental. We must confess that much. But according to Scripture, he spoke and it was so. According to Scripture, he formed the man in a separate and miraculous act and then breathed into him the breath of life, declaring him to be a living being. According to Scripture, the woman was formed from the side of the man, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, and therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." Well, maybe part of the reason we're struggling so in our culture 
and our day with that last part about a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and then becoming one flesh is because we've denied the part that came before of it. All of these things, according to Scripture, just as we were told at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And just a little bit later in that same chapter, thus it is written, so according to the scriptures. The first man, Adam, became a living being. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So if we are to trust the testimony of Scripture regarding the last Adam, based on nothing more than our faith in the Word of God who speaks and makes it so, then it seems like we ought to trust his testimony regarding his own work in the creation of the first Adam, the first man. If we are Christians, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus through whom and by whom all things were made is Lord, and if we believe in our heart the miracle that God raised him from the dead, then we are saved, of course. But we are also inextricably linked to both the first Adam and the last. If we are Christians, then by the grace of God, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ our Lord, our Redeemer, but also our Creator. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, as natural people, we cannot understand the things of your word. They are foolishness to us because they are spiritually discerned. And so we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our minds, illuminate the word, give us understanding. Above all, Father, use that word to create faith, for faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That, Father, we may trust all that you have said, and trusting all that you have said, Lord, we may believe that your promises are sure, that you hold us in your grace and you will never let us go as we trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.